In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hocus Pocus. When I say hocus pocus, what do you think of? Magic? Magicians. Movie. Movie. Addie thinks of hocus pocus. Good. (laughs) I don't think we have much else to add, do we? So here's... Pinocchio. <laughs> here's here's actually where Hocus Pocus comes from. Hocus Pocus came from the medieval ages when peasants would observe the Catholic Mass and had no idea what was going on because it was all in Latin. All they would hear is the priest as he lifts up the bread. They would hear Hocus Corpus Christi, and they don't know what it means. They just hear Hocus Corpus. And as they repeat that to one another, they know that this is the moment when the priest apparently is saying that this is the body of Christ. That's what Hocus Corpus Christi means. This is the body of Christ. And they knew that by because of the teachings of the Catholic Church that it's magically transforming from bread to flesh, right? As the Catholic Church teaches. So uh, the, the peasants in their misunderstanding as they, they, they began to take this phrase and they kind of butchered it a little bit to refer to anything that's beyond their explanation, something magical. And so hoc as corpus became hocus pocus. That's where we get hocus pocus. And that's why it's referring to like a magic trick is because the peasants viewed the converting of bread into flesh as magic. Is is communion a magic trick? No, of course not. These are rhetorical questions you don't have to answer. <laughs> um, is when Jesus said in John six that you must um, he told the crowds that unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you've no share in me. Uh, was he <laughs> what did he mean by that? Oh, I totally forgot to write down the verse. I'm so sorry. Here it is. Uh, Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. Um, So, of course... That is pretty startling. Eat a person's flesh and drink his blood? That's really weird. So we have two ways of approaching this. We mean either literally somehow uh, the bread becomes actual flesh and the wine becomes actual blood, or that's what we would call transubstantiation. The substance converts, all right? What is wheat now becomes sinews and flesh. Uh, What is wine now or grape juice now becomes blood. Or um, others that are less comfortable that talk about consubstantiation, which is where Christ's uh, body and blood are somewhat present around it. It's still bread and 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 wine juice, um, but now he's somehow present in it or around it. It doesn't actually convert, but he's there in it. Um, yeah, those are usually the ways people talk about it, or it's 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 a it's a symbol, it's a token to remember something that he did in the past. Um, yeah, I we are what we're gonna do over the next few weeks 
so I think four, I'm counting tonight, is we're going to actually explore where did communion come from? And I'm no, I don't mean historically. That's an interesting study in itself. And I'll sprinkle one or two little things here or there about the history of communion. But I mean in the scriptures, when Jesus at the Last Supper takes bread and takes wine and says, this is my body, this is my blood, eat it, drink it. Where did he get this from? Because on one hand, to be honest, I think I grew up just kind of like, this is kind of random. It's kind of random. Like, I get it. Like, bread can be torn, so it's kind of like flesh, and, and wine looks like blood, so I get this. But why why did he pick those? And um, what does he mean when he says that? And what would his disciples have thought when he said that? Right? So I want to, for the next few weeks, actually look at what the Bible tells us. Now, um, I'm going to say this right now because it's the it, it needs to be heard i have zero agenda in this study okay sometimes people hear a pastor and they think well what's he trying to get at or what does he want me to conclude here i honestly don't have an agenda with this i have researched this and i found it so fascinating just i, I never put these parts of the bible together i never understood how they worked and i thought we need to know this so if you come to, to a higher appreciation of communion through this, wonderful. If you come to a conclusion of transubstantiation, okay, well, that's your conclusion. If you come to a conclusion that it's symbolic, okay, that's your conclusion. I don't want to persuade you one way or another because, frankly, it's, it, doesn't, it does not change my view of you how the precise mechanism in your brain and in your faith of how you receive the bread and the cup. I actually don't, I, I, I care that we, we receive it with reverence and as an act of worship because Jesus told us to do this. But if you believe that this is literally flesh and blood, it doesn't really change how I see you as a Christian. And if you think it's just a symbol of remembering what he did in the past, that doesn't change how I see you as a Christian. Do we understand? Um, I just want to share what it seems the scriptures are doing. And honestly, I'm not trying, I don't hope you all become one or the other or something in between. I do want to propose this though, to let this out at the beginning, because this is mostly what we're going to look at tonight. I don't think substantiation and what exactly is going on, I don't think these are helpful things to talk about anyways. How do we know how do we know? So substantiation is a trans cons or whatever. I don't care about substantiation. I care about participation. Because to me, communion is our participation in the Godhead. And this is what Jesus was offering. And that when we receive it, we are receiving his invitation to us. And when we eat it, we are ingesting. Uh, we'll look at this as we get tonight. But we're ingesting a participation in him participation is the big word okay to participate means you're coming alongside and you're actually entering into the work of another so we're entering into the work of god through communion and god's work he's entering into us and working in us through communion so participation is the word i want to focus on um i will say this um cyril of jerusalem um he was fourth century and he this, just to give you guys an, a concept of where the church, even way early on, what, how they were looking at this, um, they saw, they took it very seriously. They saw communion as something that was powerful, something, God was doing something in it. And here's how Cyril of Jerusalem said it. He said, um, Jesus once in Cana of Galilee turned 
the water into wine akin to blood. Is it not incredible that he should have turned wine into blood? So they see this not really as a matter of uh, what do we want to land on. He, he simply says, look, communion is simple, is that God can do anything. He can work his power in his people through acts of worship. If, if Christ can work these miracles, he can work any miracle. So, um, okay. So participation is what we're looking at. So we want to see eating as communion. Eating is communion. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, uh, actually 2, I mean, Genesis 2. Now, I'm going to go to a couple passages. You don't have to feel like you have to try to keep up. If you want to just listen, you can always listen to the podcast later if you want to see things again. But um, you might want to, when we get to 1 Corinthians 10, you might want to be on with me on that one. So Genesis chapter 2, the first book of the Bible. So there's three major moments when the Bible is calling us to communion with God through food. It's asking us to participate with him. So in Genesis 2, we read about this um, in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So what we know from before is that God creates the world in six days. And the reason he's making it is he's making it into a temple through which he will be worshipped. And then at the end, the sixth day, he installs a man and woman as the priests of this temple. They represent the glory of God to the creation. And then they bring the creation. They harvest it. They work it like we just read. They work it and keep it and bring its fruits to God on the Sabbath day as an offering to him. So this is back and forth, God's filling creation through the humans, and then the creation's giving its praise to God through the humans. This is exactly what we do in worship. Eden was just a perfect place of worship without hindrance and restriction. Now, um, so heaven and earth were to be more perfectly united through the work of the man and woman. There's no hindrance. There's nothing that's going to stop this. Um, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God and the likeness of God, which meant that they had a relationship with him that no part of creation had. They could actually share in fellowship and communion with him. Um, that, and so that Adam and Eve were going to grow in their likeness to him without hindrance. Okay? In ways that uh, after their sin, humanity couldn't do. So here's how. Um, we read in um, we read in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, so we knew from a verse earlier there's also the tree of life and there's a tree of knowledge. Both are in the middle of the garden. Now, there's nothing hocus-pocus about these trees. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's nothing magical about them. There's nothing inherent in the fruit of the tree of knowledge that when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from it, there's nothing in the fruit that poisoned them, okay? What, What poisoned Adam and Eve when they ate from the tree of knowledge was that God had set up two forms of participation, 
The tree of life is how you commune with me. Come and eat with me. And so here's how I imagine it, is that God walking with them in the garden has a table at the tree of life, laden with the fruits of the tree of life. And in eating of those fruits, they are eating the presence of God. They are with him, eating with him. And they are growing up to be more like him because they are participating with him in his work. God over that meal would teach them and and bestow more of his likeness into them and strengthen them with his grace to do more of his work in the creation so that heaven and earth would be perfectly one. That was the plan. But they never get to that table. They never eat from that tree because instead they choose the other tree and they choose to participate in something else. So we see in chapter 3 verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay. They were supposed to be like God. Yeah. Yeah. And they were going to know good and evil. Knowing good and evil, by the way, is a Hebrew phrase for what kings had. Kings were the ones who knew good and evil. When Solomon has people come before him who want to hear their judgment, so-and-so is doing this and -and so-and-so is doing that. He's the one who enacts what's good and what's evil, right? He brings a sword down and distinguishes that. That's the role of the king. And so Adam and Eve were to grow by going to the tree of life and communing and participating in God's work in his kingdom and in his temple. They were going to grow up in this knowledge of what is good and evil, but they were going to learn about it by participating in who God is. And then they were going to be his extensions in the world. The serpent's offering them a shortcut. The serpent's saying, you don't have to learn this from God. Come and figure it out yourself. And so when Adam and Eve take the fruit of the tree of knowledge, again, it's not hocus pocus. They weren't poisoned by the fruit. They were poisoned by their disobedience. When they chose the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they participated. Who was hosting that banquet, by the way? The serpent, which we know later in scripture is the devil. They sat at the devil's table and they ate from his food. They were participating in darkness. So what corrupted the human race was not fruit. What corrupted the human race was our choice to participate in the works of the devil. And that's why we will die. He said you will die because why? You cut yourself off from the author of life. Now you're on your own. If you disconnect your iPhone from its charger, it'll depending on how old your phone is it'll and what you do with it, it'll last for a day or so, less for some people. <laughs> if it lasts less than a day, you got an obsessive use problem. I'm just saying, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe you just have an old battery. Anyways, um, <laughs> if, uh, yeah, it begins to gradually die, and then it dies, unless it's connected. Adam and Eve disconnected. No more communion, participation with God, communion now and participation with the devil. So that's what happens now. Our days run out. Okay, so we see that communion was put up there as participating either with God in governing his creation or with the devil and ruining his creation. So now we see the fall of the human race. And what do we see as a result of this? 
we see God says that the tabernacle as a means for them to come and commune with him, but not openly anymore. There's a veil separating them and only certain people can go even near this veil in this presence. The temple was designed just like the Garden of Eden. You'll notice the, the lampstand described as a tree and... Um, uh, there's the basin of water, which is like the rivers of water. Uh, there's different things in there. It's not tonight's study, though. Um, I think I, I've, I've done a teaching before where there's like 12 similarities between the temple and the Garden of Eden. So the point is that God is still giving his people away. But along with this comes Leviticus chapter 12. Or is it? Or maybe 11. Dietary restrictions. You can eat this. You can't eat that. What's the deal with that? Well, God has to now teach his people that if you want to know who you belong to, you have to think about what you eat. Because it was eating that led us to commune with demons. So, he teaches his people, look, the, the nations that worship demons eat these things. You will eat these things instead. It was a way to remember who you worshipped, who you belonged to. Uh, this extended, especially in Jesus's time to, it's not just what you eat, but it's who you eat with. This is why the Pharisees were so upset that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Why Peter, when he went to eat with Gentiles who are non-Jews, um, why they were upset with this too, is because these are idol worshipers and you're eating with them, which means you're participating in what they believe in. And they saw that as you can't do that. You can't share food with people like that. So, Food was very restricted in those days because it had to remind us of who we belong to. And this all stems from our first offense was through what we wanted to eat, who we wanted to eat with. Not what, but who we wanted to eat with. Um, so um, Jesus then comes and he sanctifies food. Have you ever noticed how much Jesus eats in the Gospels? So much so that the Pharisees and tax collectors accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. They were, of course, exaggerating. But that shows that Jesus enjoyed food. Luke's gospel has its base. I'm going to super reduce this in a um, non-fair way. But in a sense, compared to all the other gospels, Luke's gospel has Jesus moving from one dinner feast to another dinner feast, to another dinner feast. And all that's happening in between is he's talking to his disciples on the way from one feast to the next. That's essentially the gospel of Luke. Jesus eats so much in Luke that one commentary is called eating your way through Luke. <laughs> I am just, the title alone makes me want to buy that commentary when we get to Luke and that will be gold. Um, so you better come hung. No, okay. Okay. So we move forward in time and, uh, in Proverbs, which is after Psalms, so middle-ish of the Bible, we have another very similar invitation in Proverbs eight. We have lady wisdom who represents Christ and the tree of life. And we have Madam Folly who represents the serpent and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the way of death. Um, and in Proverbs 8, um, I'm sorry, it's 9. In Proverbs 9. Wisdom, verse 1, has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Those are the seven days of creation. And this house is a temple described with pillars. Wisdom is inviting people to a temple, a creational temple. This is These are echoes going back to Eden. Uh, also later or earlier in Proverbs, wisdom said, I was there when he made the world. 
Uh, she has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has set her table. She sent out her young woman to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Turn is to repent. That's what to repent means. It's to turn toward God. So she's there. Wisdom's calling people to repent and come back to the tree of life. Come back to a meal with God. Now, on, in the contrary, in verse 13, we have woman folly. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes her seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. It's like the serpent. Well, come to this tree instead. And who, him who lacks sense says, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. That's bad food, by the way. If it's stolen and if you're eating it in secret, it's like, don't let everyone know about this. This is not on the Levitical good foods to eat. This is on the bad list of things to eat. It's like, you shouldn't be at this table. And then verse 18, our, our, um, our writer makes very clear what's going to happen there. But he does not know that the dead are there. And that her her guests go, her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Sheol, remember, being the place of the dead before Christ came and emptied it. Uh, do you see the connection? You eat from this tree of knowledge, you shall surely die. Madam Folly's offering her table. You eat of it and you die. The way of sin produces death. So again, we're seeing that food becomes a primary image of participating either in the work of demons or in the work of God. Okay, so now we go forward and we go to 1 Corinthians 10. And since this gets right to our time, uh, you might want to see this one personally. 1 Corinthians 10. And we're going to put in at verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Now, Paul is he's talking explicitly about communion right now. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So right there we see, right? He's, he's bringing it all together. That from the beginning, this idea of eating was a participation with the one you're, with the table that you're eating at. So the bread and wine is our way of participating in the blood and body of Christ. He doesn't say anything about it becoming that, right? There's no conclusions on that. But it, it, it's the idea is here, though, that it's becoming you. You are entering into his death through his blood and his body. So we are dying to our sins when we eat at his table. See, this is different than eating at the other table where you participate in sin. Here at this table, we're participating in the removal of sin. So he goes on. Um, in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body and we all partake of the one bread. So as each piece of the bread is torn and given to each Christian, it's symbolizing our little part in this great collective body of Christ. Um, consider in verse 18, the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. So what he's alluding to is why did God tell them not to worship other gods? Because when they went to those altars, it wasn't that God's, it wasn't that God had like a popularity complex. It was that by going to those altars, they were now communing in those gods. 
they were becoming one with those gods, participating with those gods. So Paul's alluding to that. And then in verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul's issue, he's clarifying, is my issue is not what they sacrifice. Okay, he doesn't care that you're eating a lamb or bread or wine. Those are often things that were the, the, the Levitical law told him to offer animals, to offer grain offerings, bread, and to pour out wine. These were three ways that people came with their sacrifices. Um, he's saying it doesn't matter what they're offering. It doesn't matter that you eat certain meats or bread. What matters is the altar it's coming from because you are now participating in the demon. Okay, so eating, he's showing us, leads us to participating. Uh, so the question is, we had two trees, we had two tables, and now we have two altars. Which one are we eating from? So to conclude in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't do both. You can't participate in both because you will become like one or the other. So in both, in all three scenarios, whether it's two trees, two homes and tables, or two altars and tables, each of these sets of two give us two paths. Each of them are participation. The question is, are we participating in communion, becoming one union with God, or are we participating in corruption, which is a severance from the life of God, and it's what death and sin does to us is it decomposes us. It decreates us. It leads us to death, literally and spiritually. So that's the question is, are we going to participate in communion with God or with the corruption of demons? But through Jesus, who sanctifies all food, remember, he, he you may not remember, but um, he does declare all foods clean in the Gospels. Our Levitical distinction of you can't eat pork, but you can eat lamb, and those things are gone. Because what he's done now is he's established the tree of life again in himself. I am, that's what Paul's saying, communion in Christ, the communion, the bread and the cup, these are the tree of life. We're picking up on these themes. It's the house of Lady Wisdom. We are welcomed back in through him who died on the cross. The cross was a dead tree, but through his blood it has been watered and the tree of life has come back to being through it. Just the way that one old commentator put it. Um, he brings life to us and we can now access the tree of life. So one of the ways that we see the bread and the wine is that we see the fruits. We see the table of the tree of life. What Christ has done for us is he's reopened a way. This is why the, the veil in the temple was torn when he died. He's opened a way back to the actual tree of life. It's no longer guarded by the cherubim or by the veil. It's no longer inaccessible. He has restored to us the image of God so that human beings can once again come and have communion with God unhindered. And this is what... He's offered to us. And what Paul says, very seriously, you've got to make your choice. What table are you going to participate in?
So um, one of the things that we're getting hints at is that um, Christ gave us a meal to to assert, to make our bodies line up with our hearts and say, I want to participate in God's work. And so here's a meal. And somehow in these meals, he corrects our hearts. Because if participating with demons leads us to death and corruption, what happens when we participate with God? Life and recreation, restoration. And so there's a sense in which he's able to remake the ways that our hearts have been diseased and hurt by our sins. He at his table will heal us. The, in fact, the um, Revelation 22 verse 2 says this, that in the new Jerusalem and heaven and earth are reunited in one again, that the tree of life will be there for the healing of the nations. The healing. What Christ is giving to us is healing. Um, maybe we look at this down the road, but Paul alludes to the fact, he alludes to the fact that communion heals um, because he says when it's done improperly, people get sick and die. Hezekiah also, when offering the Passover, um, the people weren't ready because they just like had this moment like, we got to do the Passover, and they didn't have time to prepare themselves. So the people were eating it in a unworthy manner, and Hezekiah actually prays, Lord, don't let the people die and get sick. So I honestly don't know what to do with all that, other than the Bible has a vision that communing with God's table is a means of healing our souls at a minimum and maybe even, in some way, our bodies. Uh, we may touch on that in the future when we talk about um, the bread element and its connection to manna, but we'll save that. Um, so that's, that's what I'm leaving with you. I want to I end, though, by looking at one very interesting passage. I'm saying that participating with the life of God, with the table he gives us, somehow recreates us, I want us to finish by looking at Moses. So if you will go to Exodus 24, or not, but I'm going to Exodus 24. This is the second book of the Bible. Um, and we see something so interesting, which I think has just crudely been overlooked. I for sure overlooked this all my life. And then when I saw it, I could not unsee it. It was like, how have I not seen this before? <laughs> And it's not like one of those secrets I have to like go into like a three-part word study jump and leap and thing to make it connect. You know, people that do these things on YouTube and like, and that's why X plus Y equals a million. I don't know. I'm right. Sorry. I'm going, I shouldn't be going off the top of my head on things. Um, it's not at all a leap and a jump. It is clearly here. So in Exodus 24, sorry, I taught this morning at a boys camp um, over in Silverwood. Uh, so I don't quite have all my references specifically laid down. I just quickly, in, in my haste, wrote down chapters. So I know it's in 24. Like, give me a second to find the verse. Um, okay, there we go, verse 9. Uh, so like Exodus 24, verse 9. And right before we read it, let's clarify what's happened. Israel's been delivered from Egypt through the Passover lamb. Right, They've been freed from Egypt, um, completely ransomed completely taken out and redeemed. They cross through the Red Sea, um, and now they come to Mount Sinai, where God has manifested his presence through great clouds of darkness and thunder and called Moses up. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the ten ways for them to stay in communion with him. Uh, then Moses is told uh, to bring up a couple other people. So this happens 
in 24 verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are the sons of Aaron, the priests. So these are the main priests. Uh, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up Sinai and they saw the God of Israel. Now, it doesn't say they saw his face, right? We know it says, if you see my face, you die. But they saw his throne. They saw his feet. They were, heaven and earth became one where they were. They were ushered into the heavenly courtroom. They saw the God of Israel. And so notice the description of his feet and nothing more. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He, they didn't die. They were welcomed in. And look what they had did. They beheld God and ate and drank. What happens when humans are brought into the heavenly presence of God? They feast. They are brought to the tree of life on earth. They get to, they behold him and they eat. Now, did God give them bread and wine? That would be a trip, wouldn't it? It doesn't say. Uh, and this is, um, this is what people propose, whether even some early church writers, um, think this and, and, and Jewish commentaries. The Jewish commentaries on this passage say this. I'm going to read the Jewish commentary. In the world to come, there is no eating or drinking. But the righteous sit with crowns on their heads, feasting on the brightness of the divine presence. As it says, now he's citing what we just read, and they beheld God and did eat and drink. What is he saying there? He's saying that when they ate and drank, it wasn't cooked lamb or celery with peanut butter. <laughs> Things that come to your head in the moment. <laughs> um, I guess I'm creating that. I don't know. It wasn't things like that. They were feasting on the divine presence. That's what the Jewish commentaries are seeing in this. Um, and this makes actually some sense if you think about it. When Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving instructions for the building of the tabernacle, he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and we're told that he did not eat or drink water. Okay, you would die. You would die. I mean, 40 days of no food might kill you. You could survive. But 40 days of no water would kill you. How does Moses do that? He didn't train for it. You can't train for that. The only logical conclusion is that he, he fasted food and water because he was feasting on actual union with God. This what He had the tree of life. So he can live 40 days and nights without tasting actual food. Um, and when Moses dies at the end in Deuteronomy chapter 34, another amazing thing is said about him. He was 120 years old when he died. And by the way, he didn't die because his body wore out. This is really important to see. 
He died because God said, Moses, it's your time. You can't go into the promised land because you were disqualified by the way you dishonored me at a certain scene in a different story. Uh, so he was taken into the presence of God. Um, and so when Deuteronomy records his death, it says that his eye was undimmed and his vigor was unabated. His eyes were not going out and the strength of his body was not wearing out. That guy could run like he did when he was 30. That's what that means. Or maybe actually more literally, um, the Hebrew refers to the sap of one's being, which refers to rep- reproduction. Moses was still more than capable of having a family. 120. Now, this remarkable, despite people living longer back then, actually Moses in his own psalm, Psalm 90, said that the general human length is 70 years, 80 if they're strong. Moses exceeded this. So he is living beyond what people expected even, even in that time. And furthermore, Deuteronomy recording that he was still full of youth and vigor says that he was an unusual case. You don't record that if that was normal. So we see something about the participating in the presence of God and the communing with him somehow made Moses' actual body different. There was something there. He's, when we, okay, so here's one of the things that we see is that sin corrupts the human being. It corrupts our nature. And Christ came to fix and heal that corruption. One reason he came, also to take care of our sin and to take care of death so that we can live with them forever. Um, So if sin corrupts our nature, what happens when we shift from participating in sin and the devil and participating in God? He begins to mend our nature. He begins to stitch himself into our nature so that like Christ, who is the one we participate in through communion, we become a dual nature. We become human and divine, not divine and leaving our humanity behind. That's what cults teach. We become human beings who have a participation, a a weaving, Athanasius described it as a weaving of the divine within us. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. We become like the veil that was separating the earthly world from the heavenly world in the tabernacle. It was stitched with, no one knows? The three three colors, the blue, the red, and 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 the purple. We become that blend of heaven and earth woven into us. So communion is participation. And the more we participate with Christ, this is all I know, the more we're healed and the more we live the life he made us to live. There's hints in the Bible about maybe more, but I'm leaving it there. Because, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I have no confidence to say, you commune with Christ every day and you will live to 150. I mean, that sounds like some kind of sketch promise, right? Um, but there are indications that we will outstride the life of sin. And I think we can comfortably leave it there. So communion is participation. And what a glorious thing that we have access to the tree of life again in Christ who gives us himself. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages Amen.